How much do the super-rich really pay in taxes? A new bombshell report by ProPublica says the answer is very little. And when they do so, it's at a far lower rate than the rest of us. In 2018, Tesla founder Elon Musk, either the world's richest or second richest man, depending on who's counting, paid no federal income taxes at all. There was one year, 2007, when his chief rival, Jeff Bezos, already a billionaire, also paid zip to the IRS, according to the news organization. ProPublica reached these conclusions after receiving an extraordinary leak, a treasure trove of personal data that included the personal tax returns of some of the wealthiest individuals in the country. What does ProPublica know about its source? And what should we make of this information? We'll talk to ProPublica's editor-in-chief, Steve Engelberg, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, as reporters, we all love leaks of newsworthy information. And I got to say, this leak to ProPublica is... uh, is pretty amazing uh, to see that, you know, these super billionaires, uh, Bezos, Musk, uh, George Soros and others are paying little to no taxes is uh, head spinning. On the other hand, you know, how did ProPublica get this information? These is, you know, it is a, a violation of federal law for anybody at the IRS to leak somebody's personal tax returns. Could it have been from some sort of hack we don't know about? All these are, you know, pretty big questions. And one reason the Treasury Department, of course, is investigating. But, you know, I got to think that uh, the takeaway for many people is going to be reading that uh, people like uh, Musk and uh, and Bezos go some years where they don't pay anything. Yeah, you know, the reporter in me, of course, says, I don't really care where they got uh, these uh, tax returns from. It does not bear in any way on the actual reporting and, the dis- and, and getting this inf- important information out there that is uh, in the public interest as long uh, as it's accurate and the documents um, are authentic uh, and no one has raised any questions so far as to whether those things are true. We will ask uh, Steve Engelberg about it. But I have to say it was it was sort of interesting to watch uh, Jen Psaki talk about this story and kind of walk a very uh, fine line on the one hand, having to make the point that um, it is a serious breach and indeed uh, potentially criminal uh, to leak these uh, uh, documents. Um, it seems on its face criminal. I mean, criminal. Yeah, yeah. Well, as long as it came, as long as the documents came from people who had access to the documents inside the government. But on the other hand, um, you know, given the posture of uh, the Biden White House and the Democratic Party right now, she also, of course, had to very strongly make the case that uh, these very wealthy Americans. Americans um, are not paying their fair share, um, and that is a real problem with our our tax code. But but one of the chief points of this is that the kind of tax increases Biden is proposing would do nothing to to, uh, uh, address the issues that ProPublica is laying out here. Yeah, because it, it goes to the the critical issue that the ProPublica article raises, which is the distinction between income, which is taxed, and wealth, which is not taxed. And no one except for some of the furthest left members of the Democratic Party are proposing things like wealth taxes, which is what would actually go to the heart of what ProPublica uncovers. Well, Elizabeth but, but Warren is, isn't she? Isn't most <laughs> most left members of the Democratic Party? Elizabeth Warren, who did not, as I recall, did not win the Democratic nomination. <laughs> no, she did not. Uh, but, yeah. you know, this goes to the what is it? It's the Michael Kinsley point, right? That uh, yeah. 
the the real scandal is what's legal is what's legal what's right and right. there is no suggestion here that anything that you know Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or any of them did was illegal the problem is uh with our uh, tax code and, and and our system and um you know it, it is i mean the, the Buffett example is is interesting to me because we all recall uh you know Buffett you know has very progressive views on on taxes and i think he wrote a famous op-ed in Washington Post uh, in, in which he said it is, you know, terribly unfair that some years I pay less taxes, you know, than my secretary. <laughs> you know, he also was quoted in this story as saying that these revelations are shocking. I don't know how he would be shocked because how would he not know? Uh, <laughs> he, he knows how much taxes he pays. Yeah, he's actually yeah. benefiting from how this How little uh, in taxes system. he pays. But yeah. I thought his response was interesting because he says, well, I'm going to give a lot of money, most of my money to charity when I'm, you know, before I kick the bucket. And, uh, you know, isn't that, uh, doesn't that address the concerns people are raising? Um, I'm not sure it does. Yeah, I guess a lot of Americans don't consider paying taxes to the federal government any kind of form of charity, although <laughs> it, yeah. it is it is basically the way that uh, people get, you know, their services and their security right. and, you know, a lot of other important things. Okay, right. but speaking of what is illegal, and we know that leaking is illegal, and that a pretty serious investigation is about ready to get unleashed on ProPublica and its potential source. And what's interesting about it is that this, which is the first test of the Biden administration's commitment to leak investigations, follows up on a series of weeks that we've just had where the extent of the Trump Department of Justice's efforts to investigate leaks or to investigate reporters and journalistic operations has also come to the fore. And to seize uh, their phone records, I guess not the contents of their emails, but email logs um, but, uh, without without letting them know. We talked about that with Len Downey um, uh, last right. week. And, and, and after we taped that show with Downey, we learned that the American Garland Justice Department had continued a gag order on the New York Times to prevent them from saying anything about what the Justice Department was doing to try to get its reporters' phone records. And that raised a lot of eyebrows about, uh, you know, why the um, Biden Merrick Garland Justice Department would be pursuing aggressively the kind of leak investigation that the Barr Justice Department had initiated. And then we learned uh, just in the last couple of days that the Merrick Garland Justice Department also has taken up a position to defend Donald Trump in a defamation case brought by a uh, woman, Jean Carroll, who says Trump raped her many years ago in the 1990s. And, you know, Trump denied it, attacked her, accused her of being a liar and uh, said uh, he could not have raped her because, quote, she's not my type. Yeah. And because he did all of this potentially defamatory behavior while he was president of the United States. The Department of Justice has said that they will defend him in this lawsuit, which uh, it, it certainly when it occurred last year, or maybe it was more than last year, uh, at the behest of the Bill Barr Department of Justice, it occasioned a lot of screaming and yelling that the decision then was ludicrous. Some people said lunatic, other people said, but now Merrick Garland's Department of Justice is continuing the position that Department of Justice should defend Donald Trump. And uh, the reaction is still pretty harsh. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, th there is a distinction uh, between defending uh, the prerogatives of the presidency and um, and um, defending someone who a lot of people, including, I'm sure, Merrick Garland, uh, consider to be a uh, odious person, uh, i.e. Donald Trump. Um, and it's just, what's interesting to me is to see the kind of tensions uh, play out, you know, now that we're a few months into the uh, Biden administration between the Justice Department um, and the White House, both in, in this case, uh, in the Gene Carroll case, but also in the leaks case where the Justice Department was continuing those aggressive um, tactics. And then Joe Biden said it's not going to happen anymore. And all of a sudden, the Justice Department um, is issuing new guidelines. But that is a, 
a healthy tension. I think it's signs of, uh, in some ways, of a more normal uh, relationship uh, between the Justice Department uh, and, and the White House. And um, it, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out over time. You know, one more beat on this. Uh, a federal judge has already ruled on this issue and ruled against the Justice Department last year, Judge Lewis Kaplan wrote while commenting, you know, the the Justice Department's position is that what Trump was doing was uh, within the scope of his duties as president to respond to questions uh, about his past behavior. And uh, Judge Kaplan wrote, while commenting on the operation of government as part of the regular business of the United States, commenting on sexual assault allegations unrelated to the operation of government is not. What the Justice Department is doing is appealing Kaplan's ruling to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So it's taking this a step beyond, uh, you know, the normal or the, the, the first rung of filings on this, which is noteworthy. And if I could just, just add, yeah. you know, look, it's the Department of Justice's position under the Barr DOJ and the Merrick Garland DOJ on this is not completely ludicrous or lunatic or kind of far, you know, far out of the field of what the Department of Justice might do in defending or representing a, a president or the executive branch. It's it's a colorable position that they're taking. It's not kind of a crazy, you know, completely out of the blue position. But what it does demonstrate is that the Department of Justice, whether under Trump or whether under Biden, is at heart, an institution about protecting executive branch prerogatives. They always make a big point out of the fact that the Department of Justice represents the people of the United States, but the Department of Justice of the modern era also equally represents what the executive and president generically does. And that's what this really demonstrates more than anything, how thoroughly that vision of DOJ's role has has infiltrated the building at Main Justice. Excellent, excellent point uh, from somebody, Victoria, who uh, uh, did oversight of the Justice Department yeah. for many years at the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. We did a different kind of oversight yeah. Uh, yeah. of the Justice Department. Yeah. Hey, uh, we got something exciting to talk about, Clydeman. Why don't you... Uh, uh, take the lead on this one. Well, uh, yes, we do. Um, it, we're going to give our uh, listeners a uh, the first sneak preview of the latest installment uh, of the acclaimed Conspiracy Land podcast series. Uh, this is the th- the third installment. It is about the uh, 2018 murder and dismemberment uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post uh, reporter and uh, dissident. And uh, it is a really uh, terrific, riveting eight-part series, uh, which is going to be launching on uh, uh, Monday, Monday, uh, June, June 14th. Monday, June 14th. Um, and it's, a, it's one of these stories that operates at several levels. I mean, there's the story itself, which is uh, shocking uh, and terrible. And Isakoff, um, as usual, you know, you have uh, n- new revelations. I mean, this is a story that has been reported on a lot, but we always think that stories like this, that, you know, there's always more there. Um, and and you were able to uncover some really significant new uh, pieces of information and evidence. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? The rest yeah. of the story, ex- exactly. Uh, and then there's the larger conspiracy, the conspiracy of silence um, and the relationship between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia going back to World War II, which is a kind of a conspiracy of its own. So it's a really uh, fascinating uh, tale and an important story. Uh, and I believe we have an excerpt uh, that we can play just to whet everybody's appetite. We have the trailer. You will hear it first right now uh, on Skullduggery. An international mystery with a growing demand for answers. Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate last Tuesday. His friends say they haven't heard from him since. Jamal Khashoggi was his country's most prominent journalist, writing for one of America's premier newspapers. What happened to him inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul was shocking. But there is much more to the story that you've never heard, and one big question still outstanding. There has not been any justice. I'm wondering why they killed Jamal. The more one digs into his murder, the more it becomes clear. This was the result of a real-life conspiracy. There are new details from inside Saudi Arabia, never reported before, about how exactly Khashoggi was killed, pointing to accomplices still in the shadows. 
and it was directed from the top by Saudi Arabia's ruthless and all-powerful crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS. Are you saying that MBS is your SOB? No, I'm saying he's the U.S.'s SOB. And all this against the backdrop of a conspiracy of silence at the highest levels in Washington, while the Saudis gobbled up American weapons by the boatload. Six billion dollars, that's for frigates. 889 million, 63 million. And that's uh, for various artillery. And at the center of it all, a world-famous journalist whose career was marked by layers of contradictions and secrets. If somebody sits across from you and tells you that Jamal told them everything, they're 100% lying to you. He kept all of it with himself and he gave different people the things that they needed to know. But when he starts to criticize the crown prince and plot ways to counter his repression, Khashoggi and his allies find themselves in the crosshairs of a global campaign of surveillance. I think MBS saw it as a moment to brag saying, yeah, it was us. We have our guy at Twitter. There's a direct trail of blood drops from this hack to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Coming June 14th, a new season of Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. It turns out, some conspiracies are real. Well, I hope uh, that whets some appetites for uh, starting next Monday. Uh, There'll be uh, eight episodes in total, uh, two each week. And um, yeah, Skullduggery listeners, please um, subscribe if you haven't already to Conspiracy Land. And um, uh, we'll be very interested in getting your feedback. And on that note, let's go to our guest, Steve Engelberg of ProPublica, to talk about his uh, bombshell scoop on taxes. Let's get to it. We now have with us Steve Engelberg, the editor-in-chief of ProPublica, which has just uh, published this bombshell scoop about how little the rich pay in taxes. Uh, Steve, welcome to Skullduggery. My pleasure. So uh, quite a splash you're making with this, uh, and um, it's extraordinary on so many levels, both for its content and also for the many questions people have about how it is that um, ProPublica ended up having the tax returns of um, many of the richest people in America. So let's start out with what you got, when you got it, and how you made the decision about what you were going to do with it. Be happy to do that, uh, Mike. Although, like you, uh, I'm sure we make a religion out of protecting our sources. So I'm going to be maddeningly vague about some things, um, but that is for a reason. You know, some time ago, uh, the organization, our organization, ProPublica, was approached by a person who is to this day not known by us, who said that they could help inform our tax reporting and that they had a number of documents uh, or material, I should say, really, of interest. And so uh, some exchanges ensued between our people uh, and and this uh, person or persons. We don't know who we're really dealing with here. And at some point, we were given uh, a you know fairly large amount of data uh, relating to uh, the tax returns that you've now uh, seen published and others. Can I just ask a, one real quick question, Steve, because I didn't realize and I totally get uh, why you need to be vague about all of this. And we support that 100 percent so that we can continue to do the work, important work that we all do. But I didn't I guess I didn't realize that you didn't know the identity. You don't know the identity of the source or sources, but uh, presumably you verified the authenticity of the documents. Did you authenticate them with the people whose tax returns they actually are? How do we how did you actually go about and. Uh, make sure that they were real. Yes, th- this was our uh, uh, Dan. You're absolutely right. This was the biggest question for us, not uh, the motive or, or motives of the source, um, but uh, the accuracy and completeness of the information. So that was a very big question. There are a number of ways, if you think about this, that you can begin to verify this. Um, if tax returns contain information about stocks sold 
and um, it's a publicly traded company, uh, some of that information might be public. If somebody once ran for public office and disclosed their tax returns, you could compare them. There are individuals, uh, wealthy individuals, who in the source base of your reporters um, might be personal friends, and you might be able to call up somebody you know and say, uh, this is going to sound weird, but you know, a couple of years ago on line 37A, what did it say? <laughs> um, and so we had more than 50 points of confirmation in this material before we went and approached uh, the, the larger characters in the story. And in each of those cases, we presented them with information um, which was accurate. Uh, they confirmed uh, in the cases where we had you know, productive exchanges was accurate down to the penny. So that gave us a good deal of confidence that you know the vast majority of this material is likely accurate. Um, but as I think as we said in the editor's note accompanying this, we cannot vouch for each and every line of each and everything we have. And we've taken care to not publish things about individuals without giving them a chance to set us straight. Because, you know, it, it's possible that all kinds of things could happen, you know, up to and including that data entry errors were made in the beginning uh, that would have caused this thing to be wrong. So mm -hmm. uh, we are proceeding with great care. Um, this is not a situation that you've seen sometimes um, where you know, a news organization gets a database and just says, let's put the data up and let everybody figure it out. We're not doing that because we are acutely aware um, that there is a privacy concern here um, and also a possibility uh, that something isn't perfectly right without, you know, we would not post that without um, extensive, uh, extensive checking. You've got Elon Musk's tax returns. You've got Carl Icahn's tax returns. You have George Soros's, Michael Bloomberg's, Warren Buffett's. I mean, it's a it's a buffet of of billionaire tax returns that you you have in front of you. There must have been a big debate within ProPublica, not only about the accuracy of the information, but also about the privacy concerns. Take us behind the scenes. How did you consider it? What sort of decision making did you use before you decided to go go out with this? Yeah, I mean, this was a rolling conversation, um, as you know, because we're, we're uh, journalists here on this on this podcast. Um, you know, the movies are seldom like real life. So there isn't sort of one moment where um, I slam my fist to the table as editor and said, we will publish. Um, <laughs> I mean, D Danny does that all the time. Right? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it never happens. Didn't go down like that. But I mean, we started, you know, first, as, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, and you asked, I mean, accuracy, you know, do we know we have the right material? Do we know we have complete material? Let, let, let's start with that. And that was a process. And as we began to get to a point where we felt pretty confident in the material, uh, we began to frame up a story. And, and there was certainly a question of what names, how many names uh, were absolutely necessary for the public to appreciate what is, let's face it, an arcane topic. I mean, we are trying to look at currently the income tax rates as the federal government would present them, which is first we define income, then we give you a tax rate. And we would then say, um, as it turns out, that these individuals pay something on the order of 15.7% of their income uh, to uh, the federal government each year. But as we point out in the story, um, most of what they get uh, in terms of gains in fortune or wealth is not income at all. It is an income tax, not a wealth tax. And if you, all of your money is in the game in the price of stock shares that you hold, then you might be worth $2 billion more in a given year, and you might pay nothing in taxes, as is the case of some of the people you mentioned. So that was a question. How are we going to bring this to light? We thought that using um, household names, um, the, the sort of great titans of our new Gilded Age, was a, an important way for people to engage with and grasp this. And we had conversations about how many, which ones, uh, what basis. Uh, certainly one thing that stood out was if you were Warren Buffett and you had written on the subject of the tax system being unfair, and it turned out that actually it was even more unfair than you had suggested because he reported the income tax that he paid and his rate in the particular year of 2011 when he wrote a famous op-ed saying, I should be paying more. Well, in that year, he paid 17% in taxes, but if you looked at his wealth gain that year, he paid far, far, far less. So we felt that if you put yourself in the public conversation about taxes, that sort of justified it to some extent. And in other cases, just the extent to which people are sort of, uh, you know, in the fabric of our daily lives. And certainly, I think all the names that you mentioned are in, in different ways. We did not, for example, choose, although we did it as an aggregate, the, there is a top 25 Forbes wealth 
um, that we compared people to as an aggregate. How much did those people's wealth grow? How much did they, did they pay in taxes? We didn't put all 25 names. And if you look at that list, some are, are quite well known, some are much less well known. And so we didn't feel that just throwing 25 names in was necessarily the way we wanted to go. So, Steve, I want to dig into the tax avoidance strategies that you sure. lay out in this piece. But just one more beat on the sourcing question, because, as you know, the Treasury Department says it is now investigating who provided this material to you, because if it was anybody at the IRS, they committed a crime by taking this data and providing it. It has also been suggested this could have been the result of a hack of the mm -hmm. IRS, which would be alarming on many levels, if true. Um, can you say, or do you have confidence that this was not the hack of some outside organization or individuals who may have had their own agendas here that we just don't know? We really are not able to answer that question at, at any level of, of confidence or certainty. What I would say, though, because uh, we're all experienced journalists on this call, um, I would challenge any of us uh, to answer the question, in what case, when you did an interview with someone, did they not have an agenda? I think everybody comes to the table with a set of biases, a set of agendas. Uh, uh, Michael, you did one of the stories I most envied in my entire career, the people you were talking to about the Paula Jones case had a viewpoint on Bill Clinton. They had an agenda, um, but they also led you to break the story that the president of the United States had lied in sworn testimony. That was an astounding scoop. Clearly, the people involved in that had their motives, which were not terribly relevant in the end to the facts of, of what happened. Um, and so that's where we are. We simply don't know. I would assume without knowing that whoever did this did so with a motive or motives. They had a reason for doing it. This hasn't ever happened before. So it's an unusual reason or unusual set of circumstances. But I, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess as to what they are. So. Fair enough. And I, I totally get your perspective on this. Uh, you know, the only other sort of comment I would make on it is, you know, we've had debates, including on this podcast about, you know, would we take information that was provided by a foreign government, for instance, uh, you know, the Russians or the mm -hmm. Chinese? Now, no reason to think that was the case here. But, you know, when you don't know where it comes from, you know, it is uh, it is an open question. But let's get into the substance, because there was a lot I learned from your account. Uh, basically, uh, you know, what you point out is these super rich people own, you know, mega billions of dollars worth of stock that gives them their wealth. They don't pay taxes on that because none of us pay taxes on the stock we own, whether it's in our 401ks or wherever we have it. Um, but what I didn't know, and this was really fascinating to me, is that they can borrow large sums of money off that stock and live off the loan proceeds without paying any taxes on it at all. Well, Michael, I should say that if you chose to do this, you you could do the same with your 401k. Well, you're giving happy me to, an idea right now. <laughs> yeah. happy to, yeah, you're going to be living yeah. large. I don't think I don't think Marianne would be very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just I, I'm not sure the Isakoff holdings are quite um, fulsome enough to generate um, the sort of yeah. lifestyle you might like. You might be living under a bridge most of the time, um, but uh, or, in a, or in a studio apartment in the edge of town. But this is indeed part of our tax code. And this is why, when you look at it, a couple of things that I didn't know. I mean, there are many things I didn't know. I was shocked by most of this, um, like you. But I, I had heard somewhere that some of these guys take salaries of a dollar a year. And I thought, well, why do they do that? That's kind of silly. I mean, why don't they take a salary? Well, the answer is because there's no need to. They don't need a salary. And if you pay yourself $500,000 a year, you're giving 30% of it to the IRS off the top. So only a chump would do that when you can live the lifestyle Michael is suggesting of borrowing <laughs> against your stock with a three, two or 3% or even lower, because let's face it, you're a good customer at this point. Maybe it's a token interest rate, who the heck knows, 
but obviously the banks want your business. And so you borrow at a very low uh, percentage against the stock. You know, you have so much of it that it's not like the bank is ever going to worry about getting their money back. So um, from their perspective, a very good deal doing business with the titans of the world. And maybe there's all kinds of other ways that they want to do business in the business world. Um, Maybe this is just kind of like a customer service thing, a small favor that one makes if you're a bank uh, to a a, a mega wealthy person. Um, And then uh, but you missed the, the other beauty part of this, Michael. If you did do this, not only could you um, take a lower salary and income, and you, you, of course, would be charged more money in interest, but you could deduct the interest against your other income, which is amazing. That yeah. interest is, is deductible. <laughs> Carl Icahn explained to us because he does something, uh, you know, among the more fascinating things, he basically runs his entire vast um, sort of corporate rating uh, financial operation through uh, what amounts to his own personal tax return. This is perfectly legal. It's called an S-corporation. You know, small proprietors do this. People who write books do this. Doctors do this. It's, you know, generally involves trivial sums of money. Um, But if you were to do this on the scale of Carl Icahn and you had interest expenses of hundreds of millions of dollars one year, you could deduct that against all the capital gains you made by selling stock at a profit. And in the year, one of the years that we looked at, Mr. Icon did exactly that. And he said quite correctly, what do you want me to do? Why should I pay taxes? I really don't know. What do, why? And I think that's the fair question here. None of these guys that we have written about, as far as we can tell, have remotely violated any law. They have simply taken advantage of that which is in front of them. When Trump said, you know, I don't pay taxes, it's the law's fault, I think there was a bit of an eye roll because Trump was Trump and he was also a real estate guy. And people sort of said, well, that's real estate guys. You know, they just they get incredible breaks. And that's a decision made long ago to encourage the building of houses and apartments may have been right, may have been wrong. But it's not like that's the whole world. I think what we're now learning is that actually, if you're in this class, um, it is more the whole world. So that's kind of uh, that was a takeaway that I got that I did not expect to find. So uh, you point out in the story that the U.S. tax code really emphasizes uh, taxing labor and not wealth. But you calculate something that you call the true tax rate. And that is, I guess, the, the value of the, the unrealized profits. Yes. Um, explain that. That's not the way uh, uh, taxes are calculated by the IRS. That's not the way the system works. So explain yeah. uh, that reasoning uh, and how you how you came up with that calculation? You know, we, we did talk to some experts about this. Um, it, it is it is fair to say, and it's um, a, a great honor that uh, one of the three bylines on this story, Jeff Ernsthausen, uh, spent several years um, as an analyst at the Federal Reserve before becoming a, a journalist. And he was, a, you know, he's a quantitative journalist um, and very familiar with this material. Uh, and, and Jeff, in turn, and his colleagues, Paul Keel and Jesse Eisinger, spoke um, hypothetically, of course, with a number of experts about this idea, this notion. The notion would be that in the modern world, as we now have it, if you are a titan of industry, your growth and wealth, whether you had a good year or a bad year, is not measurable in what your income was, as we defined it when the tax code began more than 100 years ago. Um, Because what do we define income as? We define income as the salary that you're paid. Uh, You know, if you're an Uber driver, you have to include your tips, right? Uh, If you're the same with a restaurant worker, the money that comes in. The stock that you hold um, is completely outside the system because it is a so-called paper gain, as you said, an unrealized gain. You know, you you might have bought a stock at a dollar and and today it might be a hundred. And if you bought many shares at a hundred, you now have many millions. But until you sell it, the IRS would say, well, that's not really an event that affects you. But as this story points out, it is an event that affects you because having all that kind of unfathomable amount of stock allows you to finance a lifestyle uh, that is better than, let's say, you had last year. And that's how the tax code works for most of us. You know, if you have a good year, you you get a new job and you, you double your salary, that changes your life. The people we're writing about, they have a great year and it doubles their wealth. It changes their life potentially, but it doesn't change their taxes at all. They change, the contribution that they make has nothing to do with the kind of year they had. So that was the logic of true tax rate. Um, and we did say that the true tax rate of this top 25, when you calculate it and you look at their wealth gains year on year, they're paying about 3.4% in taxes on their wealth gains. If you include that as how their fortunes are rising, which I think is 
a controversial but not unfair thing to do. Elizabeth Warren has has suggested this. She has a bill before Congress trying to figure it out. I will say it's while it may not be a, a ridiculous notion, it's a complicated notion. Right. I mean, if you want to tax someone's wealth, how exactly would that work? How would you measure it? I mean, this wealth changes from day to day. You know, I mean, Amazon stock price goes up and down. right? Which incidentally does kind of raise an, uh, one of the great uh, parts of this uh, of this story that you published is is clearly going to spin off a lot of follow up. Right. And so uh, one of the questions that I had arising out of it was this is how the U.S. does it. How do other countries do it? There must be answers to the the kind of the, the problem or the 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 issue as you define it that that other people have explored. Yes, there are. And we did look at that at the very bottom of the story. We, we allude to it. We would we, we do intend to come back to it. Um, I would not describe myself at this moment as an international finance expert, but a comparative, um, tax, law comparative tax law specialist. Yeah, <laughs> not quite yet. But um, I actually feel that it's very important that we investigate the uh, failed effort of France to um, to put this in place. I only half joke here. Uh, France put in a, a modest wealth tax and then withdrew it. And I think it would be really good if the editor in chief made a personal visit to Paris in say July <laughs> to investigate how this has gone with special attention paid to restaurants that struggle with the wealth tax <laughs> that need to be visited in person. Um, but I, I think I think Victoria, you asked a great question. Um, other countries have tried this. It is tricky. If you were going to go down this road, um, you would have to add expertise and muscle to an agency, the IRS which has been, frankly, sliced to the bone. I mean, one of the things that we've been reporting on over the last you know, six, seven years is the extent to which uh, the IRS has lost expertise, has lost staff, has lost people, and is really no longer able to audit highly complex returns of the ultra-rich ultra anyway, right now with our current law. I think I read, Steve, that, that uh, the Biden administration has proposed um, – uh, an additional $80 billion for the mm-hmm. IRS over, I mean, I think that may be over 10 years or something, uh, so that they can, um, you know, beef up their in- enforcement. That that was a sort of remarkable amount of money, I thought, $80 billion. Uh, well, do they need that much? Well, first of all, there's a decent amount of scholarship out there that the tax compliance of Americans who are not paid W-2 forms um, is not what it could be. Um, I've asked the team members to describe it. So this is in rough terms, but there is actually academic papers on this. So let me give you a very quick description of how things work in America. You take about 50% of the people, so from the people who are at the very lowest, who make $0 up to the sort of middle, 50th percentile, they basically pay nothing. Then our system is actually, to use the technical term, progressive, meaning that the more you make, the more you pay. And it basically captures people who earn wages. And it kind of creeps on up from about 10% to 12% to 20%. Um, The top rate, which means every dollar above that rate, you pay a certain amount, um, is now set at $620,000 a year for a couple. You pay 37% of every dollar above 620. So that is a fairly wealthy group. And if you are working at a law firm or you're working in a factory or you're a plumber with a great year, you know, you're a Texas plumber this year and you made 500 grand because, you know, every pipe was frozen, you're going to pay a significant sum of that to the IRS. Then we get up to like the next level, millionaires, people who have S corporations, but smallish ones. Um, And there, the academics believe you see substantial tax evasion, not avoidance, but evasion their true rate, if you will, what they're actually paying and what they're actually earning by true, in this case, I just mean income, their true income tax rate begins to decline. And it kind of goes down into the 20s or whatever, or maybe even lower than that, depending on how much they cheat. And then you get to the billionaires and their rate falls off the table. So we have this sort of strange curve where at either end, the people paying the least are either the billionaires or the people who have nothing. Um, And that is our current system. And the billionaires are able to do it legally. And the people in that middle between, you know, the 37 percenters and the billionaires are doing it, you know, to some level of of less legal. And so that's our tax code. Steve, I'm I'm struggling to try to figure out how the tax code or Congress could address this. Yes. Because. um, All right. Warren, Elizabeth Warren has this wealth tax, which I understand starts at $50 million. Um, You know, one day somebody could be at $50 million. The next day they could be at $30 million or $100 million because the price of stock 
changes all the time. It's something that's worth a lot of money today, right. maybe worth a lot less uh, tomorrow. So there's that. And then there's Call also- Call it the Dogecoin problem. But at least with stock prices, publicly traded stock prices, you know what they're worth. Yep. There's also you know private investments that Absolutely. people make. I, a relative of mine, enticed me to invest in a perfectly legal California pot company. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what that's worth today. It's not a publicly traded thing. I don't know how that would be taxed. It's not income, but it's a holding that I have. So, I mean, you're obviously talking to a lot of tax experts who think this is, for good reason, an important issue. But what are they telling you about the best ways to address it? Well, here, you know, again, in, in all seriousness, you're at the very edges of an editor's knowledge. The reporters on this story, I think, uh, might be slightly more authoritative on this. But as I understand it, if you were to in put in any form of a wealth tax, the kind of increase that Dan alluded to in the size of the IRS would be table stakes bare minimum. You would have to bring in more people um, who were skilled at evaluating things like private companies. It can be done. Um, because private companies go public all the time and they're based on numbers and there are formula at this point that allow you to calculate what something is worth. It, it, it's not an undoable thing. Investment banks do this every day of the week. So I, I think that's not necessarily an unsolvable problem, but it's a problem of, of, of some complexity. Um, the Elizabeth Warren thing that you allude to, I think I always like to think of that as like what they call in bankruptcy law, the homestead exemption. When they take everything away from you, they say, OK, well, we're going to give you your house. So you're not going to like do with that. So you, if you were going to put a wealth tax in, clearly you'd have to have the wealthy homestead exemption. You know, a, a number of yachts would have to be retained. So you'd set the <laughs> you set the bottom at a very generous place and then say, I would suspect these are this is generally the way these things work, a, a, a one or two or some percentage per year thing that is in essence. A, a surcharge, right? It's an annual surcharge. But you would theoretically, as Elizabeth Warren has tried to do, I and mean, others would probably disagree, you set the bottom so high that we're really talking about people who are making uh, windfall, windfall profits. Remember, 50 million is one twentieth of a billion. And even after the divorce, Jeff Bezos has dozens and dozens and scores of billions. So, you know, you think about that. And we did we did actually do just for fun. Um, it's on the Web. People can find it. We did this thing where we said, OK, the average American family of four makes one hundred twenty thousand. And we said, if you, if you spread all those dollar bills out in a football field in Weehawk in New Jersey, uh, it's about this size. And then if you take all of Jeff Bezos money and spread it out in dollar bills, I forget, it goes to Philadelphia or he's, something. He's I basically mean, got the tri-state area. Yeah, he's got the whole tri-state area. So the magnitude. Can I just mention, though, uh, just one quick, you know, Elon Musk, um, you <laughs> report in 2018, he paid no federal income taxes all. Mm -hmm. um, he is, you know, according to some estimates, even richer than Bezos is these days. He's or doing okay. They're one and two. Just tell us about your exchange or exchanges you had with Musk. Yeah. I, look, look, the um, it was interesting. Because he replied to one of your emails. He, he did reply. Uh, Jesse Isinger, our, our lead reporter, uh, was uh, uh, told uh, sort of to send an email to this address because what we did not want to do, frankly, is put this very private information in the hands of an unauthorized person. So we went to the sort of spokespeople, PR people, if you will, colleagues, lawyers of these people who we were writing about. And we said, we have very personally confidential information we want to ask this gentleman about. Are you authorized to receive such things? And if a person said, no, I'm not, but I'll get you the right person or whatever, that's how we did it. We didn't just send someone's tax information to, you know, uh, their, their flack and say, here, have fun with this. So, in this case, somebody, I believe, directed us to a personal email from Musk, and Jesse sent uh, Jesse Eisenberg sent a thing saying we have uh, a bunch of personal tax information, and his he wrote back uh, a single symbol, which was a question mark, and that was his comment. <laughs> and I'm not which really you reproduced the name of his next <laughs> child too, apparently. Yes. Yeah, I, I I I don't know how to interpret the question mark, um, and I'm not going to try to. But we included the full quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me. We talk. We're talking about Bezos, so let's talk about him for a second. Uh, you reported that uh, he paid nine hundred seventy-three million dollars in taxes on four point twenty-two billion in income, 
as his wealth soared by uh, $99 billion, resulting in a 0.98% true tax rate. Uh, and uh, by the way, uh, I, I'm not sure. I think it was 2011. His children got a uh, $4,000 tax credit, or he got one for his children. I'm sure they were thrilled with an extra $4,000. Can you just talk a little bit about how Bezos did this? Well, I mean, we don't have um, Bezos chose uh, was one of the only I think was the only person uh, not to sort of engage in a in a fuller dialogue about this material. So, um, you know, I, I would caution that we don't have his answer to your question. Um, you know, I, I think in general terms, um, you know, he is another one of these people who had uh, very, very, very little income in those years, uh, some deductions. Um, and it comes to zero, and you are still entitled to take a tax credit for your children. Um, there's nothing in the law that says that because you're very wealthy, you can't take it. And I guess his accountant chose to do so. Okay. And then let me just ask a question about so you focus on the 25 you know, wealthiest uh, Americans, but um, you know, that's the, the 0.0001% or whatever it is. But what about the wealthy in this country more generally? Because I think there's a perception out there that they don't pay their fair share, which is what all the Demo- uh, you know the Democrats uh, say. Pat Toomey, um, in I, one of the stories I read, kind of pushed back on that a little bit, the senator from Pennsylvania. And, and he cited these uh, numbers. The top 10% of American earners make half of all of the income earned. I mean, that's a separate question, which is the income, the, the income inequality piece of it. But they pay 70 percent of all of of all of the income taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that does sound like a fairly progressive tax system. It, it, if you look at the overall wealthy Americans, um, it's very different from what you you reported today, is it not? Yes, and and I tried to sort of sketch that out earlier, which is to say that um, his numbers are absolutely right. I've seen the same study and and was struck by it. I think that Americans who make what, you know, ordinary people, not these top 25, if you were to say to somebody, so-and-so makes a million dollars a year as a salary, that sounds like a lot of money. I mean, right, if if you're a basketball player, you might make $5 million a year. And by the way, if you're a basketball player, you will be paying about 30% of that in taxes. And so you're paying a lot of taxes. And I don't think this story necessarily says that the wealthy in American, wealthy people in America pay no taxes. That was not our intent. It was more to say that the ultra wealthy have managed to, um, through you know, uh, uh, means that make perfect sense. If you don't tax wealth, why wouldn't you try to create a large pond of untaxable money that you could put over here on one side and as little as possible in income? And so I think what this goes to is a question of fairness at the very, very top, which I think is fair to ask that question. Why are people who are the very most fortunate in our society uh, paying almost nothing or nothing, but also the size of the pie, right? Because if there are these vast reservoirs of untaxed money, then the whole conversation about what's possible or not possible potentially changes. Right now, we have a 37% top marginal income tax rate. The administration says, maybe we push it up by two points to 39 to fund some badly needed infrastructure projects. It is true that if you take that vast group of people that Senator Toomey's talking about and add 2%, you're going to get some money. It won't. That change from our analysis will not touch any of the people we're writing about. It is completely irrelevant. Which is why you, you may need the, the kind of wealth tax you were talking about before. Well, it depends what the country wants to do, because ultimately we have to decide how much do we want to tax people at the top, the vast majority of the people at the top, the top 10 percent that Senator Toomey alludes to, how much could we, should we tax them? And if we've reached these sort of edges of what you can do with that and you don't want to raise taxes on the people below them, is there room above them to do more? And if so, what would it look like? And I think to me, I'm not a policy guy. I'm a journalist. I'm not a tax expert. I majored in history. Thank you very much. So um, I don't really have a prescription today, but I think seeing these numbers potentially opens a different conversation than we've been having. Because the main conversation we've had for all these years is, should the top rate be 37, 39, or 40? And that puts us in a very narrow band of conversation. And frankly, it puts the people who bear the brunt of this 
is a much larger group of people who you would not necessarily think of as all super wealthy. I think that's fair. So one of the one of the justifications that some of the the ultra you know billionaires that you discuss in your in your article raise is it's actually Warren Buffett who makes this case. Why should I pay more on my taxes to the federal government when I can give it all to charity and it'll be more effective um, in terms of improving the public good? And and so I, I'm sure future articles of, of yours are going to deal with the charitable contributions of some of these uh, people who you write about. But what do you make of, of that argument? Well, first of all, um, I'm torn because ProPublica, that's ProPublica.org. Um, is an organization, news organization that gains enormously from charitable giving, um, which people deduct, probably because in part they love us and partially because it gets them a tax deduction. So um, <laughs> how do you calculate uh, how much? On your <laughs> yeah, side, right. So from the point of view of ProPublica, strictly selfishly, we wish that the philanthropic deduction would last forever and ever and get even bigger. Um, that would be great. Um, but outside of the self-interest, which is self-interest of philanthropic organizations like ours and others, there is this question of logic. And we are going to be exploring other things and other stories. I don't, I don't know where we're going with philanthropy, but I suspect that's on the list. Here's a question. When Michael or you or I give a dollar to the federal government, they do a lot of things with it, some of which I totally agree with and some of which I don't agree with at all, some of which really are disturbing to me. We don't have a lot to say about that. If I could avoid giving any of my dollars to the federal government and set up a charity that did the things I like, um, that would be, for me, much more satisfying. Um, and most Americans are not able to pick and choose how those dollars get spent. You know, If you're a, a deeply committed Republican, you're sending your dollars to a tax and spend liberal Congress, and they're going to spend money in ways you hate. And when it switches, vice versa. And that happens every single year. And for People like Mike Bloomberg, and I'm not disagreeing with anything he cares deeply about. He cares deeply about obesity and, and, and public health and, and gun violence. These are very important things to him. And he gives a lot of money that, in his view, does a lot of good. That's just not a privilege that everybody has. Well, Steve, like any time uh, we in the fourth estate can change the conversation about an important public issue, uh, I think we are doing our job and that's something you've done here. So I want to thank you. I have one last question, though. Uh, you've got this stack of material. Uh, will we be seeing more and will your source, whoever he or she might be, be providing more? Well, on the second question, of course, um, even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you, um, mm -hmm. but I don't know um, what what is in the mind of, of, of our source. But on the first question, absolutely, yes. We believe that we are looking at the surface of a very, very, very interesting question. And based on the response to this, um, I am now more convinced than I was in any way, shape or form when we started this that people are going to read with interest seemingly arcane things because the strategies we have written about in this very first story are the simplest ways to avoid taxes. Coming in future articles will be more exotic and more interesting ones, uh, many of which are legal and potentially, and I don't think we've gotten to this yet, perhaps some of which push the edges of legality. But there's more to come. Um, and um, I would have said that the audience for tax stories is a, is a limited one, but clearly um, it's not. So we hope to, well, when, to do you, when a, you make do it onto Skullduggery, you're into a whole new stratosphere. But I've never <laughs> been on Skullduggery before, so we've done a lot of interesting okay. things. So thanks anyway, for having me. Yeah, all right. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Great thanks, work. Steve. My pleasure.